every second of every minute of every day for over 900 years. I fought for peace in a universe of war. Now the time has come to face the choices I've made in the name of the Doctor. Our future depends on one single moment of one impossible day. The day I've been running from all my life. Welcome to the Track One Podcast, episode 50. My name is Mark McManus, and I'm delighted to welcome Eric Stadnick back to the podcast as my co-host today as we discuss Stephen Moffat's novelisation of the 50th anniversary story, Day of the Doctor. Hi, Eric. Hello, Mark. How are you? Very good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing quite well. I'm very pleased to be back. Yeah, it's been far too long. Uh, it's, it's good to have you back. So, uh, since we last spoke, you've moved from Washington to Prague. I have... How's life in Prague treating you? It's quite nice. I teach English and it's uh, nice students and it's a beautiful city and, you know, European life suits me. Yeah, it's a very beautiful city. I was lucky enough to visit earlier this year for the first time. Yes. It was um, great to see you and meet your lovely wife. Yes. And, uh, and I, in fact, wouldn't have been able to do this podcast if you hadn't kindly sent me a copy of the book because it's not available in this country, in English at least. Ah, no problem. That's, uh, yeah, I think it's funny, probably people think of Prague as quite a cultured place as well, don't they? But um, mm-hmm. can't even buy Stephen Moffat's novelization of the day. <laughs> <laughs> you can get a good number of books in English, and I checked yeah. any number of bookshops um, for it, and you will find some of the Doctor Who tie-in novels in Czech, ah, right. at especially like nerdy sci-fi-themed bookshops and, and shops like that. But uh, I couldn't find any of these new new run of Target novels anywhere. So uh, yeah. So does Doctor Who go out in um, in uh, Czech Republic? Not that I know of. Uh-huh. Um, I've, I've never heard anyone say, "Oh, I guess I watched it on the television." Um, that said, there is a, a small group of fans here because. Uh, Czechs are pretty big on pirating (laughs) (laughs) Uh, films and TV shows. Like I had a, as an example, I have a student who talked about, oh, I'm watching Narcos, which is a Netflix series. And he was like, I'm watching Orange is the New Black, which is a Netflix series. And then finally he said one day, I don't have Netflix. I mentioned something. He's like, oh, I don't have Netflix. And I said, no, but you watch all these. He's like, oh, no, yeah, I've never had Netflix. I'm just, I'm like, oh, okay. Um. Like, you know, Game of Thrones is hugely popular. No mm. one here pays for Game of Thrones, probably. Right. Yeah. It's just it does, it's just quite, quite common because there just aren't the distribution deals. Yeah. Um, so they're watching, so, watching them in English as well, presumably. Yeah, almost always watching them in English. I think usually they'll find versions that have Czech subtitles. Right. Um, someone makes that and puts that up somewhere, and that's what they do. Ah, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we should mention your Prague blog, which uh, I very much enjoy, and, and basically sold the place to us as well when um, we were looking for a, <laughs> uh, a city break for my birthday earlier this year. Read so much about Prague and, and heard it on your podcast that uh, it basically went to the top of the list of places we want to visit. 
I'm pleased. It is. It is really a a very wonderful uh, city. It's, it's it really is quite beautiful. And I've visited a number of other sort of you know old worldy style European cities, and none of them quite combines all the elements that Prague has. So, yeah, don't be put off by the lack of Doctor Who books. It is it is a great no. place. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want to learn Czech, you can buy a copy of something in Czech and then have it on your bookshelf in Czech. Yes. But uh, I did remember, I couldn't run some nice bookshops, actually, um, when I was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Shakespeare bookshop, quite a kind of nice one. Yeah. Just, uh, just the other side of the river from where we were. Yeah, Shakespeare and Company, and there's also the Globe. They're both named after named after Shakespeare in one way or the other. Yeah. yeah, the two main English language bookshops. But even just your average bookshop in a mall, because they still have those here, because Amazon hasn't really hit the country hard yet. Right. Um, they always have an English language book section. Basic things like I've bought a number of like Agatha Christie's and things like that. Mm. Pretty easy to find. Uh, as somebody who came to Doctor Who with the new series, um, and mm. you did the the excellent Doctor Who book club podcast, did you oh, ever you. go back to read uh, any of the Target novels at all? Not once. No. Um, not once. No. I I I have them all in forms. Um, and and I kept meaning one day to like oh maybe I'll go back and read some of the ones people talk about very highly mm-hmm. uh, like Doctor Who and I think it's called Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters or what the Silurians is called yes yeah um, I've heard that like uh, Mythmakers is very well written mm-hmm. a couple of the other ones that are sort of like interestingly written um, but I didn't feel the need to sort of. No, <laughs> for stories I knew pretty well from having seen them or, or things like that. I didn't really feel the need to go back and um, and explore them. The only, uh, before this, I will say the only thing that approaches a novelization I had read was I read The Shada by Gareth Roberts. Yes. Um, a number of years ago. Um, I think Sean and I on the book club mooted discussing it, but we ended up not, if I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was fine. Um, I've never been as big of a fan of Douglas Adams writing for Doctor Who as many other people. Um, and but I thought Gareth Roberts had shown that he captured that era's tone quite well, and so he was a good choice to do the novelization of the shooting script and whatnot. And um, I also am just not of the opinion that Shot is a lost masterpiece. It's just a lost story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, uh, but it, it, it was fine. Um, it was, but it was, it was, it was good. It was enjoyable. It was yeah. fine, but it, it, it didn't lead me to go, Oh, what I really love is reading, reading Dr. Who stories. I already know. Um, and which was my main fear of coming into this novel was, um, is it just going to be me reading a story? I already know. And yeah. I think even more so than the, the original target books, which each had their place when the stories weren't available on uh, video or DVD or streaming or anything like that. It was, uh, and it's a cliche to say, but it was the only way you could sort of re-enjoy them. Um, <clears throat> their place now is, like you say, the cave monsters. Stories like Remembrance of the Daleks as well, that add a lot more depth and color and background to the, to the characters and the situations. Um, but yeah, in terms of the, the new run, it, it, it's kind of all about the differences, isn't it, between the uh, the televised story and, and what you're now reading. Um, and definitely Day of the Doctor, of the four that were released this year, adds the most for me. Um, and completely 
I mean, no, it's nothing like the target novelization space. <laughs> um, it's um, I mean, it's not like any other book, kind of the way it's written and and the way that the multiple doctors allow it to be written. I think. Yeah. Well, it's you know, it's I you know, I get I get stick sometimes I'm, for 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 talking about how just how smart of a writer and how creative a writer Moffat is, but he just is. Mm. And this, you know, and he had never written a full-length novel before. He had done some short stories for various Doctor Who annuals and things like that. Um, you know, the the Sally Sparrow story that became Blank, for example. Yeah. But this novel shows that if he wanted to, he could likely have a very successful career as a novelist. Absolutely. Like, just like, do it. Just like, write a bunch of books. And, I, you know, I've seen a couple of interviews with him, and he said it's actually it was a very different experience, and he kind of liked it in some ways. But I think he's, you know, I think he's sticking with TV. As we all know, he's signed to do a big show in America. I've forgotten which. I've forgotten what he's adapting exactly, but it's something. The Time Traveler's um, Wife, I believe. Time Traveler's Wife. Yeah. That's the Time Traveler's Wife. The yeah. Audrey, um, Audrey Neffenberger. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Um but yeah, that was you know that was a huge novel that was made into a mediocre movie that people didn't care for very much. But mm. Eric Bana, a mediocre actor, nobody ever cared for very much. Yeah. Um, but this, he takes all of those Moffaty things that he does in the TV stories that he writes, and finds a way to make them work in the novel. And the thing is, they work much better in the novels because what they are fundamentally are they're fundamentally novelistic devices multiple narrators telling stories out of order, all those sorts of things that sort of seemed new and crazy when they hit movies and TV, those were, had all been in novels for generations, if not at least decades. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when he finally gets to take that bag of tricks to a novel, he does all of that plus some more even. And it's really, it's really remarkable. I think, it, it's really, it really is just really remarkable. I, I started reading it and immediately was like, oh, he's doing something with this. He's really doing something with this. And it was really quite astounding. Yeah, absolutely. It's not, in no way is it a, is a, a slavish adaptation uh, of the scripts or the TV story, is it? And it seems like he's not that interested in doing that because a lot of the uh, the scenes, the scenes that you know have happened because you can fill in the blanks when you watch the TV show but you are seeing it from uh you're seeing the bits that happened in between in a lot of cases or from a completely different perspective um and yeah it, it adds so much to it definitely yeah and what's interesting and like the first thing i noticed about um the first time i really noticed that he was going to treat it like a novel and not as just an adaptation um was the day of the doctor um famously begins with the really ridiculous sequence of Matt Smith hanging out of the TARDIS, blah, 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 all mm -hmm. that good stuff. You know, Clara at school and sort of just, just setting up. And then there's this big action set piece for no reason, except for the fact that they thought we're going to be showing this in cinemas for the 50th anniversary. We should have a big action set piece that takes advantage of 3d and all that good stuff. Yeah. Great. Fine. I, I respect that. It's a visual medium to some extent. He cuts it entirely, essentially. Mm -hmm. I mean, it happens, but it happens very briefly it's not like he spends all this time lingering trying to say, oh, there's this massive stunt. Let me describe this. But he doesn't care because he's like, no, this is a book. That's not what we're doing here. We're doing words. We're doing character. We're doing theme. We're not doing visual set pieces. So all the visual set pieces kind of go away. And then you realize, oh, it's like, oh, okay. Okay, that's, that's actually quite interesting because then you realize when you're not sort of being dazzled by the spectacle – 
you see even more clearly what's going on underneath the story that was always on there on TV, but sort of it's easy to get sort of lost in the punch of the air moments and whatnot. Absolutely. Uh, so the, the, the chapters are, are interspersed by sections, um, uh, first an unknown narrator. Um, so these are quite playful and the way that these are done so that it's, um, it's written as a, as a live stream from the future, Somebody's kind of presenting it um, as a almost a kind of a lecture or something like that, and and then presenting the the doctor papers of the the actual chapters, um, and it's he's quite sort of um, professorial about it as well. He's sort of saying, well, you know, like these are things to look out for and themes of authorship and things like that. Uh, so we we find out at the end that this one. Actually, very quickly, I'll just say, sorry, if you haven't read the book, we're obviously going to talk about yeah, it in great detail. Oddly enough, there are massive spoilers for a book that's a novelization <laughs> of a TV show you've seen multiple times, probably. Yeah, there are, there are huge spoilers, aren't there? It's um, it, more, more so than you would think. Um, so, yeah, obviously, if you haven't read the book and you intend to, uh, probably put off listening to, to this episode for a while uh, until you are conversant with it. <clears throat> so, yeah, at the end, we find out that this, this unknown narrator is the curator as played by Tom yeah. Baker in the TV episode, which on the second reading made me read everything obviously completely differently. Well, not completely differently, but it puts a, a very different slant on it, doesn't it? Um, it does. And I, I just had a curiosity when I started reading it because I just assumed it would be the Matt Smith doctor. Mm. I was reading all of it in his voice. Yes. Yeah. It was the same. And then I soon, and then I realized that sort of the twist happens at I didn't catch it until the end, really. Um, and I was sort of like, oh, oh, oh. And, and then it all clicks and it all makes sense. And you go back and you can immediately hear it in the Tom Baker voice. <laughs> yeah. I think it was something that Steve Moffat said when he was writing the episode that what he found um, about writing different Doctors was there isn't much difference the way they are written in terms, mm-hmm. of, uh, in terms of how they speak. It, it's all, uh, for him, it's all about the way the actors deliver it. Yes. Um, similar sort of thing when they, they released, I think, in Doctor Who magazine, the, the audition pieces for the 12th Doctor. When I read them, I thought, well, he's, he's writing as if it's still the 11th Doctor, because I guess that was the default version in my mind at that time. Um, but then once you've seen Peter Capaldi and, and, and read them back, it's like, oh, no, I can hear, hear Peter Capaldi's voice in them now as well. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, and he uses that, obviously, in the book to, to great effect as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So the chapters are, are largely written by the Doctor, but he writes in the third person. So he says, the Doctor said this and the Doctor did this. Uh, apart from very occasionally when he says me or I, which is mm-hmm. the, the whole time when he's writing as the War Doctor and very occasionally as the other incarnations, which, uh, which feeds into the idea you get that the Doctor, which uses this entirely Stephen Moffat idea uh, from <laughs> from his run, that the Doctor is the promise and the name that you live up to, um, and it's a constant struggle for the Time Lord, known as the Doctor, to uh, to live up to this. So he doesn't necessarily see himself as the Doctor all the time. It, it's something to aspire to. So he, he refers to the character of the Doctor in the third person. Yeah, I, I won't say it's entirely Stephen Moffat. I think he's picking up. I, it might be sooner, um, but certainly in Earthshock, the Cybermen, I think, say this one calls himself the Doctor. Mm. 
as if they're already calling out that's not usually how Time Lords go by things. Yeah. And we do have, you know, the example of Romana Duratralunder giving this idea that Time Lords actually have goofy, crazy names. Um, and so the Doctor is clearly not his actual name. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in starting from the beginning, obviously it's not the idea of it being promised, but it's clear that the Doctor with William Hartnell is not his name. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, no, yeah. So yeah, I mean, idea um, that the doctor's just his name kind of came in as sort of like lazy script writing later. Yeah, um, and it's certainly not Doctor Who because he never responds. Yes, that's no. my name. Yeah, when it's said to him a million times. So oh yeah, I don't uh, mean the yeah, I don't really yeah. mean sort of Stephen Moffat idea that it's not his name, but the um, but that idea that there's a that there's a distance between who he really is and yes, the doctor he aspires to be. I suppose yeah, that's. Um, uh, there's a twelfth doctor line about you know I was saying like if you try really hard and do your best and that kind of thing and and, and a really good day you you get to be the doctor kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, uh, and 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 then it's something Moffat plays with multiple times. He plays good. He plays with also in Flatline when Clara's like, mm-hmm. wasn't I a good doctor? And the doctor says, you are an excellent doctor. Goodness has nothing to do with it. Yeah, implying again, it's like it's this role. Yeah, it's this thing, and so he does this throughout the novel sort of shifting back and forth where in the same sentence you'll have the doctor did this and then I did that. Yeah. And it's sort of the idea that things the doctor is proud of, he'll cite to the doctor and the things he's kind of ashamed of or not proud of, he says, I or me or the moments of weakness or fear. Yeah. Yeah. The bits that Um, fall short. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I don't want to skip to the end, but like the best usage of that, is in the very last chapter. Yes. Where it, it hits, like, the last word in the book. Yeah. It's so perfectly chosen <laughs> that I, I just, like, air kiss. It was so good. Uh, we'll get there. Yes, definitely. Uh, so it, um, it's, it's presented, the, the chapters are, are, are numbered, but they're all out of order because, um, as, he, as the, uh, the curator says, you know, how can you, uh, how can you put it chronologically when it's about the, the life of a time traveler? But we get the, the night of the Doctor first, which was the eighth Doctor uh, web-released short episode, kind of mini-episode, where he regenerates into the War Doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, I mean, the huge revelation in this comes after the chapter, I think, when the curator talks about um, the, the sisterhood, or Helia of the sisterhood, that the potion yeah. she gives the eighth Doctor to help him regenerate doesn't have anything in it. Uh, it's lemonade and dry ice to create an effect. Uh, <laughs> and it just gives the doctor license to to not be the doctor, not have to live up to the doctor and do what's necessary in the time war to, to get it done. So I think to get it, to finish it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And essentially she knew that what would do it was her words. Yeah. Her words and the, the, and the fact that this girl had just died um, Cass, which becomes a major point both at the beginning and the end about Cass and the fact that the doctor is, is unable to save her because Cass sees him as a threat because mm-hmm. he's a time lord. And that, yeah, but I, I love that. It's, it, it couldn't be such a jokey moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, and I'm sure there's some sisterhood, whatever, because he is actually dead at that moment. Yeah. But we've seen the doctor be dead and regeneration kick in before. Yeah. Uh, so. I don't think there is, yeah, I, but I, yeah, it's just lemonade and dry ice. You did, yeah. you became that person. Yeah. It was always Doctor. It was always you. 
Um, and there, there are some quite funny bits in here as well where, um, and again, once you hear it in Tom Baker's voice, I think, where he talks about Ohelia smoking cigars and playing darts and that kind of thing. <laughs> and, uh, it's very unlikely that the sisterhood of Carmen would be like that, but it's like that sort of Tom Baker thing of, of um, having these great kind of anecdotes and tall tales, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, it very much fits. And it kind of, I like the idea in a way that the curator represents represents the doctor in retirement. Like yes. it will, it never act, quote unquote actually happens. You know, the timeline's confusing. Whatever you, and and the book stresses again. Don't think about that. That doesn't matter. This is Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Um, but that in retirement he could have a different relationship with all of these people. Yeah. And he and the head of the Sisterhood of Karn, who, by the way, his doctor was the one who pissed off in the first place. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) That they could just sort of like hang out and tell the truth for once about everything. Yeah. Because now you're old friends and you're retired and it doesn't matter anymore. Like the next generation, the generation after that are doing stuff. They're off in the universe. We're just sitting here talking and playing darts yeah that's great I, I love that imagery yeah smoking cigars i like the idea yeah. that um she yeah on Khan, maybe she opens that little cupboard door and lights the cigars off the sacred flame <laughs> <laughs> well and the thing is the way moffat portrays her and because she appears several times she becomes like the doctor's externalized conscience which is a really interesting idea she took an externalized conscience yeah she took over yeah. a little bit matt smith had madame vastra for that and then I felt yeah. like Ohelia took over that role. Yeah, yeah, for for uh, for the Capaldi Doctor. Yeah, mm. Capaldi. Sorry, and um, and so it's interesting. But she is quite, you know, you can't imagine any room that she wouldn't feel comfortable walking in and taking command of. Mm. Like she barges into Gallifrey. Yeah, <laughs> and they're like this is really, she's like shut up. <laughs> she's like, I don't care. Yeah, I, yeah, she's quite lovely. Yeah. Um, so from there on, all the all the War Doctor segments um, are written by the Doctor, and those are the ones that are entirely written in the first person. So because it's it's more of the the true self of, of the Time Lord who normally goes by the Doctor, it's all me and I in those ones. Um, and it reminded me that that is somehow the the sort of what they're really like, um, which reminded me of the the most recent episode, Twice Upon a Time. The testimony in that call him the Doctor of War, and when they show yeah. the they show the clips, it is of all his incarnations. It's not it's not the Time War one. It's you get to see all the Doctors at that point. So it's kind of the way that uh, he's almost been judged by history as well. That 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 is the real that is his real self kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's it is yeah it it, it unifies the sort of two halves of this character and. Um, I do, I do think it really, and this is thinking, this is the tension that was in the RTD era as well, with sort of Davros saying, you know, you turn your companions into weapons, um, the man who would never carry a gun, mm. you know, all this, which, by the way, he does. And so the, and so I think it's perfect that, like, the chapter that is called Day of the Doctor is is sort of a series of tiny moments that we would never see on the TV show. Yeah. But that, but that embody that idea of what it is to be a doctor versus being the doctor or like being the doctor of war. Yeah. It's like, and it's, 
and and yeah, he really hits that again and again. This idea that this usage of violence and its acceptance of it and whatnot is has always been part of this character. But on their best days, these men and this woman, you know, these people have elevated themselves above that. But only sometimes, mm. and not as often as they like to think, which is quite nice. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge theme of the book, isn't it? Sort of the making peace with himself and, and reconciling yeah. this. And um, it, with with Osgood as well, um, that we'll get to, it's, mm-hmm. it's mirrored in her, that idea of, uh, again, of making peace with, with herself and who she is. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll, we'll get to those bits as well. But yeah, it's, uh, that, that, that struck me, especially on the second, the second reading, that, that that's what it's all about, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I was just going to yeah. say the sort of reading the book made me realize something about the how Moffat uses the war doctor um which is sort of he it allows him to I'm talking about externalizing again but if Ophelia is sort of externalized conscience the war doctor is the doctor's way of externalizing to himself essentially the worst thing he ever did mm. and the worst aspects of his own nature in instead of understanding and incorporating them into himself and real recognizing I did that, he's able to sort of put it over there and say, no, he did that. And that's something you can only do really with a character like a doctor because they sort of shift personality and whatnot. But it's also something we all do. We're like, Oh, I was only 20. What did I know? I'm it's 20 year old me. They were an idiot. They were the jerk. It's like, no, that's still you. Yeah, <laughs> those are still your faults. Those are still your mistakes. Those are still your sins. Um, and this book is about sort of how do you allow yourself to accept that you have done these things, that you have gone to these lengths, without letting it sort of just bring you down. Like, how do you accept that you have failed, but that you still continue to try to be something better? which is why I think it's like so good because it's actually about something in a way that again, like I, when you watch the day of the doctor, it's sort of nostalgia and whiz bangery and, and great fun and sort of like what he's doing with the war doctor character kind of get, it becomes about the doctor and the character of the doctor with the book makes you realize, no, it's about you too. It's about you waking up every day and recognizing that just because you screwed up yesterday, doesn't mean you can't be great today. And that's lovely. That's just lovely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the uh, so chapter eight is about the the eighth Doctor's kind of last little adventure, um, and it seems I think that this is probably written by the War Doctor because he's very deprecating about the eighth Doctor. There's lots of mm-hmm. lines. Like he says he mistook himself for a hero. Um, yeah, uh, about the distress call appealing to his vanity and that kind of thing. He does. Uh, whereas the other doctors wouldn't, you feel the tenth and eleventh doctors wouldn't feel that way about the eighth doctor. That the, the war doctor definitely would. Um, and it's, it's still. It's, it, whereas the, the the mini episodes very kind of quite light up to that point. Right from the start, it's he says something about um, the way he kind of laughs and whoops as he swoops in to save her. Um, <laughs> that that kind of sealed his fate. Yeah, there's a nice line as well about because he's kind of really um, portrayed as a bit of a poser, isn't he? That he might take his tea with him out onto the ship, but uh, he's, the risk of spillage yeah. is too great. Yeah, um, and yeah. There's, there's, there's something I think very incisive about the Eighth Doctor there, which is that he's not. 
he's not that he's not good at being the doctor. He's not. It's that's not true at all. But that in his truest form, he's actually quite quiet and passive and ruminative. He's sort of like and passive to some extent, which is why I always felt like there's no way the Eighth Doctor fought in the Time War. Mm. Like I was just like I was. I knew it in my bones, and then it was revealed. I was like vindication. Yes. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it's sort of a counter-reaction against the Seventh Doctor that the Eighth Doctor became very inward. Like, you, he's this sort of, like, pretty poet type. Um, and so, but he knows he has to do the hero stuff, and so, but it feels kind of put on with him. Yeah. In a way that it might not quite as much with some of the others. Yeah, it's a performance, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That he, he's, he's concerned about how dashing he looks and that kind of thing. Yes. Um, and there's, I mean, throughout the book... There are tons of kind of in jokes and references and things like that, and I think even having read it twice, I feel like I've probably only skated the surface of, of and not picked up a fraction of them. Um, but they they're not gratuitous, um, I think, because there's a line about how he wants to be worshipped and to be adored, um, which is you know feeds into the way he's portraying the Eighth Doctor. But it's also a line that I've heard Tom Baker say in interviews. I can't complain really because. I always wanted to be loved, really. Uh, and then, as I got more confident, I wanted to be adored. And now, in the twilight of my life, I have to tell you the good news, and now I'm, well, worshipped, really. Yeah. Out of curiosity, when you reread it, did you read the chapters in numerical order? No. Because I, I, I did a quick flip-through. I didn't reread, but I did a quick flip-through and just saw which chapter he'd placed in what order, and... And it's interesting. I, d- I don't think it's random. Right. I, I don't think it's just a random joke. Because um, it does start with chapter eight, which is the night of the doctor about the eighth doctor, which is sort of the first thing in this chain of action. It does end with 13, the doctor. Mm. But then everything in between is all scrambled. But the first chapter, the one labeled number one, is the war of the doctor. And it's about the doctor stealing the moment which is yes. sort of the, the exciting incident, as it were. Mm. And I'm like, okay, this kind of actually might make sense in some weird way if you dread, actually read it in numerical order. Maybe. I'd be, I'd be curious to know if anyone's tried it. I might actually try it this weekend. <laughs> yeah, I want to do <laughs> that now. Yeah. Again, <laughs> yeah, I definitely want to do that. Yeah. That's a great idea. Because, yeah, it's, it is quite interesting because does, there does seem to be some pattern um, it doesn't seem to be just sort of like flipping around. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, from there we go into, um, what do we go into there? So we this, go, we, this is when we pick up the 11th Doctor, right? Yeah. Yeah. So essentially it follows the pattern of the TV series, of yeah. the TV show. So you've got the opening where Unit grab the TARDIS and, uh, and bring him to the National Gallery. Um, and there's an interesting here about the, uh, the the doctor inventing inner monologues for, for other people, um, which is what you would get in a in a, in a book. But the yeah. because it's all written or largely written from the doctor's point of view, um, you, when you have an inner monologue, it's the doctor's either invented it or it says about him having um, empathetic and low level telepathy. Yes. So it could be actually what they are thinking. Yeah. And you, but you don't know. Yeah. Because the doctor is a construct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the doctor is a construct talking to you from a book, which is a construct that presents itself as real life. 
which is also something very clever that he does by doing this whole doctor's paper thing is he, he states this, he states it yet again, the doctor's real. Mm -hmm. You don't know about him because it's secret and such that, but the doctor's real. Yeah. And here's proof. Here's a book. And that's great for kids reading as well. Um, yeah. You've got that idea and the, the playfulness of those sort of inter-chapter sections because they're so mm -hmm. meta and uh, you, you, there's things like he, um, it's as though the, the curator can see when somebody's put the book down or he says oh, someone's just thrown it across the room and that kind of thing. <laughs> and the whole thing about chapter nine, which we'll have to talk about. Yes, definitely. Um, the... Uh, and they're very meta, those bits as well. There's, there's one bit, um, I'm not, I think it's around here, where he talks about people shouldn't be reading the book at work. Uh, and he says, put it down, Chris, you've got far too much to do. Um, it's a little message for Chris Chibnall, which is, uh, which is a nice, uh, nice I little think, thing. I happening. think it was a joke, yeah. I yeah. think it was a joke about Chris Chibnall. Yeah. I think, maybe. Um, yeah. the, the thing about the, the telepathy, because it's, it, it, it's used in the, in the bit where he meets Kate Stewart again. It reminded me in the 90s when BBC Books started doing the Eighth Doctor novels, um, when they, they took mm -hmm. the license back from Virgin, um, you could write to the BBC and get a copy of the writer's guidelines, which um, I did, um, but I never got around to submitting anything. Or I was doing my degree at the time and things like that, and I, I never, never had any good ideas. Um, but there were two kind of I main... I that. <laughs> um, well, nothing, nothing that was, uh, I thought was any good anyway. Uh, but there was two big rules on there that I remember seeing on the, on the guidelines. And one of them was um, that you, you shouldn't really get things from the doctor's point of view. It should be mysterious what yes. your thought processes are. Uh, and the other one was that the doctor shouldn't use telepathy because um, it would be too easy of a solution. Um, yes. Which both of which are uh, completely out of the window in this book, aren't they? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Which I think makes it yeah, stand out so much. And I don't. I don't want to discredit BBC writers. Many of the BBC writers are fantastic novelists, like Paul Mars and and um, Blazer Blanket on me. But yeah, there's a bunch in there that were really good mm. that uh, we covered on the book club. But Moffat's a good enough writer that he can break whatever rules he wants. Yeah, and and he can so he can do this with the Doctor, and he gets around it by doing this trick that you talked about of doing the Doctor and I are in his mind two separate people. Um, which is something, you know, like we saw again uh, in Capaldi's, you know, final words are about like, you know, doctor, I release you. Mm. Like the doctor is like, it's like being Pope or something. It's yeah. like, you know, the doctor is dead long of the doctor. It's this thing that goes from person to person, from time lord to time lord, but it's not. And so he can do both. We know what the doc, we know what the eye is telling us about what the doctor is doing. What the eye is actually thinking is often still hidden from us. Mm. And so he does both at the same time. And it's sort of like, well, okay, you're just better than we are at this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the, the beginning of the 11th Doctor chapter, we get, the, uh, we get a scene that's uh, a kind of a missing scene, basically, from the 11th hour, where after he's left the child Amy... To, he says he needs to take the TARDIS for a run-in or something and then comes back and it's however many years later. Um, there's a scene where he's, he finds a mirror because he wants to check what, he's, what he looks like and he finds it in the hands of a robot clown, which I think is the first appearance of the robot clown. Oh my God, the robot clown. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, and he, he struggles to find a mirror for a while because we've learned that the Ninth Doctor had sort of smashed them up after, um, after the end of the Time War. He didn't um, want to see himself, which, yeah. is, which also explains possibly why the first time he sees himself is in Rose, even though we know it's not the first... Even though we know there's probably stuff that happened between the end of the Time War and Rose. Yeah. So it's also a nice way of sort of fixing that little weird continuity break. Yeah, that it's not, not a, a completely recent regeneration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the way he describes the end of time is quite funny in this as well, about the... Uh, the radiation poisoning, and uh, <laughs> he goes. I should go back and apologize about making such a big deal about the radiation poisoning, yeah. maybe. Because <laughs> he went and said goodbye to everybody he's ever met. Yeah. <laughs> then he regenerated. Yeah, it's, it's quite charming, him, him having a gentle swipe at RTD's uh, penchant for uh, melodrama. Yeah, definitely. So then, when, once he arrives at the National Gallery, we, we see this from Kate Stewart's perspective, but it's the 11th Doctor writing it. So we realize that it's either an invented internal monologue or that he's been reading the mind. And it seems in this case that he has genuinely been reading a mind because uh, he sees in her mind a um, kind of a flashback to her being with the brigadier in the hospital. Oh, God, don't make me cry, Mark. Don't make me cry. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really kind of beautifully written, isn't it? That, um, yeah. She, the brigadier is reminiscing with Kate about the doctor, but the last thing as he withdraws from her mind um, is this image of the brigadier waiting for the doctor to visit, uh, and Kate starts saying, "Oh, maybe he'll come tomorrow," which uh, which is and, really sad. And he's like, "Yes, maybe tomorrow," and it's sort of like that. The idea is that you have this old man waiting and holding on one more day, thinking maybe tomorrow he'll come to visit again. Which is picked up later Which in the book, uh, as well, isn't it? As um, as a kind of a mirror of the themes, I suppose, of uh, of him trying to be better and fixing the past. Uh, that the curator does go back to that point to visit him. There's a nice yes. scene with the two of them there, which we'll get to. But uh, yeah, it's sort of it's nice that that's set up uh, and then and then paid off later as well. And it's something that's implied on screen in end of season six, after after uh, Nick Courtney had passed away. Um, Moffat had this sort of call on screen where the doctor called the hospice, I guess it yes. was, um, and said, tell him I'm coming, which meant, you know, if, if you're watching it, it means, okay, they know who the, they know at least vaguely that they, the brigadier has this crazy old friend called the doctor who comes mm. and visits and picks him up and takes him out for the day sometimes. Like, they, he's not like, they're not like, who is this crazy person? They're like, they understand that this happens sometimes, which is nice. It sort of gets you know that he does actually check in at least sometimes. Yeah. Um, and then he finds out he's passed away. Um, but he he takes that moment and sort of the other stuff and sort of expands on it and really, really cements that sort of, you know, yeah, the doctor has cared about many people. He has never cared about a single human more than he cared about uh, you know, Brigadier Gordon Lethbridge Stewart, like Brigadier Alistair Gordon Lethbridge Stewart. Like he adores him and has for a thousand years kind of thing. Yeah. And, and has kept in his life in various ways. And I think that's really lovely. And 
a touching testament to the actor, but also the character and how he looms in the show, but also like the role the character must have had for Moffat when he was growing up during that time. You know, the Brigadier's, the Brigadier's the Doctor's best friend. They're all the Doctor's best friend, but the Brigadier's really the Doctor's best friend. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's not many people that would have got that kind of send off within the show, is there? That's uh, uh, that that really yeah gave me a lump in my throat. I remember in that episode um, when he when he makes that call. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and he uses it very well on screen, but he also uses it very well in here. It's it's never people cite Moffat for fan service, but he very rarely does fan service for the sake of fan service. He uses it to enrich the theme to develop the characters to kind of show other dimensions mm-hmm. like there he uses it to sort of spur the doctor to stop running and go to Lake Silencio he's like oh uh, oh Brigadier's dead okay I guess everyone has their time mm-hmm. and he goes um, and we're then here it sort of again sort of deepens this idea about the doctor trying to be the doctor and not just being some guy with the box yeah, because as as he uh, as he kind of relives this through Kate, he says the line. He says mm-hmm. he remembers saying to somebody, "One should live with one's sins," which I didn't recognize yes. at all. I I could not place that quote. It might not be actually on screen. I don't know. No. <laughs> it sounded like something real. Yeah, and it sounds like the way it says like one should live. It maybe the first Doctor or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I couldn't place it. And then as he withdraws, he says, I forced my mind back to the present, work to do, squared my shoulders, straightened my bow tie, and the doctor stepped through the doors. Uh, so yeah. it's that thing, it's, he realizes he's, he's, he's let his, his friend down. He, he's not been, um, not been the doctor in that sense of, of you know, see, kind of going to see the brigadier uh, in his final days. So it's, it's a moment where it's the first person but then he kind of books himself up and it's the doctor that, that, that walks in to, to face whatever the problem is that he's been called in for. Mm-hmm. Which is not the first time that little technique will be used. No. Um, and then, then it goes to, uh, to chapter one where we were introduced to it by the creator as saying that it's not written by the doctor. So we go into it thinking this is from the point of view and it's a time lord who seems to be warning the time lords the other time lords that the doctor's trying to break into the omega arsenal and steal the moment i thought it was the master did you think it was the master i completely did yeah yeah because he talks about the uh that he's fought him fought the doctor and that he's killed him before i think well there's only one person that could be around that would fit that bill yeah uh, but it's actually just a very clever doctory way of getting into the arsenal. It's it's the war doctor, and he's by warning yeah. the time lords that the doctor's already in there. It makes them open the doors, uh, and it's just kind of the last paragraph, isn't it? He says um, he, he put the moment in a bag and then scratched no more onto the onto the stone floor as he left. Yeah, he does that, and you realize, oh my god. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's uh, it's it's kind of a scene that we don't get. Uh, in the in the episode, but we get to see the uh, yeah the moment the, the we get to see the the scene where he steals the moment and it's uh it's 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 the way the doctor would steal it, isn't it? It is. It's not. You know, I think a lot of people assume, oh, well, he would understand all the technology and whiz bang and all that stuff, and it's not. He understood psychology. Mm-hmm. 
and he used deception and and that sort of stuff and did it. He's like, no, believe me, I know him and I know he's in there. They're saying there's no breach. I know, but would there be a breach if the doctor were in there? Mm. Even Colin's all, yes, I know him. You know, they go through all this and it really does. He's playing on the fact that the fear of the doctor is so strong or yeah. the doctor of war, the warrior, as they t- sometimes call them here. It's so strong and he's so destructive. And so he's caused so much chaos for possibly millennia like he really stretches out how long you think the war doctor goes and yeah all throughout time and space that someone who claims to know him saying no believe me he's in there he's in there right now get get someone down here to check and as soon as the door opens he's like (laughs) (laughs) okay i got the box and he's off to go he goes yeah and he's very stephen moffat to to use the mythology of the doctor like that as well isn't it um, yes. That even if the other time lords think that's impossible, I think, oh, well, no, it's the doctor. Yeah, he must be able to. Anything do it. is possible with the doctor. Yeah. And and the, the callousness of the time lords as well, that they are prepared to sacrifice that person, that person saying, like, don't leave me alone, the doctor's in there. Um, but yeah. they, they just go ahead anyway. So it shows the, the, the stage that they are in the war as well. Yeah, how far they have fallen. Yeah. Then we get the uh, chapter 10, The Love of the Doctor. Uh, so the first few chapters like this, like chapter 11 is the first 11th Doctor scene, chapter 10 is the first 10th Doctor scene, isn't it? And chapter 8 is the 8th Doctor scene, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the curator, again, he says, you know, the Doctor wrote it, but which Doctor wrote it? I couldn't really pick anything up in this one which suggested which Doctor wrote it. So I guess that's kind of ambiguous. Oh, I was thinking that was, I was thinking it was the 10th Doctor. Yeah, that's... That's what I, I assumed, um, but just the kind of the way the uh, the way the curator puts that in, or Stephen Moffat puts it in, it makes you think about it as you're reading it, um, and then trying to second guess it, I suppose. Yeah, or actually, no. Now that I'm looking at it, it actually has to be the Eleventh Doctor, right? Because it's it's him and River. Yeah, it's them having the bath together, and he's wearing his clothes. Yeah. Because he fundamentally, Moffat wants to have it both ways with the Doctor and River Song. They are fundamentally a couple. The Doctor (laughs) fundamentally does not know how to be the male half of a male-female heterosexual partnership. Yeah. Both things are true. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, this this massively expands the the Tenth Doctor's uh, hunt for the Zygon, the kind of rogue Zygon nest. Uh, so he's aware that it's out there. So he visits River Song to see what she knows about it. And the scene opens with them in the bath together. Uh, but he's fully clothed, even with his coat on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she even says, she's like, I was hoping you would take your clothes off. Yeah. <laughs> Which implies heavily that she is indeed naked. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he just doesn't care. No, even the coat. He, he loves her, but he doesn't care. Yeah. Um, and then, so she she sort of uh, gives him the information, and she's she's about to go to the library as well, which is the only thing really the tenth Doctor knows at this point, um, because it's set after the silence in the library. Um, mm. Is that that's where she dies? So he leaves her and, and and kind of resolves to to stay away from her in future, to, to maybe alter her fate. Um, although as he leaves, he says something like she uh, she gives him a kiss and then he leaves like seven hours later or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So it, it does suggest that, that, that more went on. 
so yeah. yeah. But then with them, it could be God knows anything. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, there are probably epic tomes of fan fiction written about what happened on the 27 years that the last night under William lasts. Yeah. 20, whatever it is. Yeah. And, and that's fine. I don't, I, I don't, I don't need to know that. Everyone can fill in how that relationship works on their own. Moffat has his own spin on it. He always leaves space for your own interpretation, which I like. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so, so River Song directs him to the court of Elizabeth I. Um, or just Elizabeth, um, as, as Ock says, she doesn't like to be, to be numbered. Um, <laughs> and he, he sympathizes, yeah. Um, so he does his usual, he tries to sort of infiltrate the court, um, but he just wears his normal clothes and, and makes no attempt to blend in because he figures that um, a real spy would try and do those things. Uh, so as usual, he's locked up uh, as a spy. And tortured horribly. Yeah. For like weeks or months. Yeah, and he's, like his whole plan um, revolves around just charming Elizabeth and winning her over. Um, it's a kind of maybe, but he's quite James Bond, the Tenth Doctor, in in the sense of um, with River Song and then Elizabeth, is is parts of his his plan re, kind of revolve around seducing women or using women uh, through his charm and things to uh, to get information or get stuff out of them. Uh, you know, Pertwee's the sort of James Bond in the action sense. Uh, Tennant is with with the women, isn't he? James Bond. Well, at some point, the tenth doctor realized he was good looking, mm-hmm. um, and and the eighth doctor did somewhat in the novels too. Like every once in a while, the doctor will remember he's good looking and will use that to his advantage. Um, it will be interesting, just as a side note, to see if Jodie Whittaker does that. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely, at least the tenth doctor, there are definite moments when he knows. He's being charming and dashing, and he is convincing people to do what he wants based on that, because he's good-looking. Yeah. Yeah, that's sure. That works. And it's the it's the side of it's the side of the character that that Moffat brings out in this story yes. as well. I think when you have a multi-doctor story, you've got to kind of pull out probably, um, you know, a few components of the of the characterization. You kind of do it almost like kind of a a thumbnail sketch kind of thing and that's the that's the side he brings out isn't it with the uh, with the scene with the two Elizabeths and all that kind of stuff yeah he's the the tenth doctor he's the lover he's the romantic he's the sort of hey kind of kind of doctor yeah. which is you know you think about the stories <clears throat> Moffat wrote for the tenth doctor science uh, science in the library but also um, what's the what's the one of them Madame de Pompadour uh, Girl in the Fireplace, Fireplace. yeah yeah, girl in the fireplace. Uh, it's like he clearly, he clearly likes the idea of this iteration of the Doctor having a romantic life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, or at least a romantic energy. Yeah, and it he, it kind of goes right to the wire where he's uh, he's on the gallows. Um, <laughs> um, I'm not the gallows. He's he's, he's going to be decapitated, isn't he? Yeah, he's, his head is on the stump. Yeah. Um, and uh, and again, we get a brief first-person bit here because uh, he says it's okay to be afraid now. No one can see my face. So he can he can drop that character um, because obviously he doesn't feel that the Doctor should, should be showing fear. 
Um, and then he, he decides his last thought will be for the children of Gallifrey, um, who were who were killed in the uh, when the moment detonated. Uh, at the very last possible second, Elizabeth grants him a one-day reprieve to organise the picnic, uh, which is which is where we meet him in the TV story when they when they're having the picnic together, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And you were like, "How did this?" Okay, it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> where she's like, "I have a book. I want to. I want to flesh this out a bit. I want to like give a bit more backstory about how the relationship worked, and also explain a bit of why one of the most powerful and interesting women in human history decided to, you know, accept marriage to this strange alien guy." Yeah. It, it definitely fleshes her out as well and gives her a bit more credibility because uh, you realize that as much as the doctor's trying to manipulate her, she is also manipulating him. Yeah, and he doesn't underestimate her. No. He never underestimates her. The only time he does is when he assumes that she was killed by the Zygon. Mm. But mentally, he never underestimates her. Physically, he does. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then when the when the time vortex opens, you get the Doctor remembering the last day of the time war, and for the first time remembering seeing Rose Tyler there. Which I thought was that the suggestion that 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 didn't happen the first time. You see what I mean? Like, how do you mean? Um, that like the that it, it played out and the moment did detonate and killed all the Time Lords and all the Daleks. I don't know. Then, I don't know. It's it's but, uncertain to me heavily. And I won't say uncertain. My my take on these sort of like re- rewriting time things is that the first version never actually happened. Then mm-hmm. that. Whatever you, whatever the Ninth Doctor remembered happening didn't actually happen. It never actually happened. It's not that it happened and then it was changed because it's still in the past. But it does get very sort of like, well, how does that work? It comes very grandfather paradoxy. Yeah. Um, and that's just sort of like a, a mind trip that I don't necessarily need to. I've settled. I have my answer. You can have yours. Mm. I think. I think he definitely... He definitely, until the 11th Doctor, he definitely believes what happened, but he also doesn't remember his other selves being there. Yeah. Which means what the mental experience of that day is for the 10th Doctor when he thinks about it is very unclear to me. And it seems to be mainly that he did something and everybody died. But it's, yeah. But in fact, he never killed them. So... I don't know because he talks later when he does the thing about the transportation from the cell or from the woods to the tower. When he says, I rode through that three different times, it's still the same event happening. He's just experiencing it from different points of view. Yeah. So my guess is that the event is always the same. There is an event that happened, even if it gets affected by future events. Somehow the event is always the same. But for whatever reason, because of the blurring of them being together, the tenth doctor, the ninth doctor, remember it wrong, and the eleventh doctor until this story remember it incorrectly. It's just their memories of it are hazy and fuzzy, and so they they believe that they did what they set out to do because they walked into the barn, they came out of the barn, and the war was over. So yeah. therefore, what happened in the middle must have been ergo. But it's hard to tell. Yeah, I get because there are points where they talk. They talk about the fact that there's multiple doctors there. I mean, they they can't remember it, and he says he. Yeah. It's only when the trigger event happens that he can then remember it. Mm-hmm. 
so yeah, that was. Uh, it, I, I think it's probably deliberately ambiguous as well um, as to whether yeah that always happened because he must he always had to survive to meet Rose for the moment to look like Rose and, and that kind of thing. I guess. Yes. As well. so, yeah. Well, although at the same time, Rose had to absorb the time vortex, and this is Rose as that both. Yeah. Um, yeah. What did you think of but the moment? I think she's. I th- in the book, I think she's both sexier and angrier. Yes. She's, she's spikier. Mm. Um, and I don't know if that's because it's not Billy Piper giving the lines, but I think the, the lines are actually different sometimes, and I think that's interesting. He's made her more of a combatant, in a way, for the war doctor. Yeah, yeah, she challenges him much more, definitely. Mm. It's like that moment, uh, the moment where she is mocking the no more. Mm. in the TV show. No, oh, it's much more that sort of vibe, which is, which is interesting. Yeah. It's more comedic, isn't it? In the episode. And then, yeah. yeah than this. I think it may have all been Moffat thinking maybe people don't want to see Rose Tyler, even though it's not Rose Tyler being that harsh. Yeah. But instead she's more supportive. Yeah. It's, it's such a fondly remembered era, isn't it? For a lot of people. Uh, yeah, yeah, he wouldn't want to be seen to be to be undermining it. Yeah, so overtly. Yeah. Um, and then so after that we get chapter nine. Is yeah. that where chapter nine technically falls? I forget. Yeah, I think yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which, uh, as we know, the curator says it's it's going to settle all kinds of Doctor Who controversies, um, like when the unit stories were set. Um, why Susan has such a prosaic earth name when she's from Gallifrey. What did you think of this chapter? So chapter nine, okay, let's, let's just kill the joke. So chapter nine uh, essentially is somehow connected with the silence. Mm-hmm. The silence have, have blocked this out for some reason. By every, essentially, the idea is every time you read chapter nine, you read it and then immediately a silence makes you forget it. Yeah. Makes you forget it somehow because they're all around us, except they're not being evil anymore or something. Maybe they are, who knows? And so it, it eventually, it, and it keeps popping up. People saying, you know, the the curator says, no, you read chapter nine. No, believe me, you did. I know you did. I see it here on my thing. I don't, yeah, maybe you don't remember it, but you totally read it. And, but he never says what's in it. And he keeps making this joke about it being, kind of this forgotten thing. Yeah. And then it says, finally, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to turn to page 232, every you read chapter nine, make a hash mark. And so you turn to page, which is the last page of the book, and so you open it, and at the back is just scores of hash marks, and then help me. Yeah. Written. <laughs> <laughs> Very going back to like the sort of the silence as the super duper creepy, you know, hash marks on your skin sort mm. of vibe. Um, it is utterly disconnected from the plot of the book. It is just a bit of fun, except it's also kind of a meta joke because it's about the fact that there are these things that you forget, but that are still somehow important, which somehow ties in with the war doctor. It's also by numbering that chapter nine is a joke about the fact that the ninth doctor is not appearing in this episode. Yeah. So it's his way of having a couple of jokes and also doing the sort of, joke about himself about how Moffat's going to fix all continuity, which is the thing people like to say that he was doing all the time. Yeah. But he points out all this continuity. He does not fix. And he says, Oh, it's all in chapter nine. Oh, you, you can't read that. Oh, the silence. <laughs> yeah. I really like that. 
I thought it was uh, I thought it was a great idea, and it's the the sort of the as much as it can be the interactivity of the book as well, the way the, the creator mm-hmm. is talking directly to you uh, and apparently reacting to what other readers are doing. Um, I, I, yeah, thought it was a great thing to put in there. Yeah, I thought I, I thought it was fun. I'm sure there are some people who will be sort of annoyed by or something because they're you know yeah. goofs or <laughs> but uh, yeah, I. I I thought it was super funny. Like when I finally hit it, I was like, "Oh, clever motion!" <laughs> well, yeah, because he says uh, at one point the first reference, chapter nine, he says, "Don't skip ahead and read it." Um, so I didn't. I thought, "No, I'm going to read it in the correct order." <laughs> I think I'll, I'll, I'll get to it when I get to it. Um, but then, then as you read on, you realize you're never going to get to it. Yeah. Um, but he addresses that as well. Like you say, people would get angry about that. One of the the curator things, the. Um, as the, the sort of the feed comes online, there's little messages at the top, and one of them says, if this book is making you angry, knock your head lightly against the wall to restore perspective. Uh, <laughs> I think that, that is a message to a lot of um, Doctor Who viewers, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it also, by not having a chapter nine, it means he gets to have the last chapter be numbered 13 and still have it correspond to the Doctors. Yeah. Like, it, it allows for him to do a lot. Like, he's... He seriously, clearly, and he always talks about like, oh, well, it was just sort of, I realized if I did this, I could do this. Like, he says he's not a planner, which I find to be the most nonsensical thing ever. Yeah. But he's not a planner. He's the best improvisational writer ever in terms of seeing those opportunities and being like, ah, I can do that. Yeah. Oh, I did this. As I did this thing, I can do this thing now. And everything, can blah, 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 blah. He can kind of make it all work. Because either that has come from brilliant planning or brilliant improvisation with a novel i have to think it's at least somewhat planning because it's just so much harder not harder but so much more time-consuming process to write a novel yeah but you know who knows writers always lie about their process yeah (laughs) yeah he's very self-deprecating you see interviews and everything he's uh um and even in this there's uh, one of the meta jokes again in the curator section he says something about timey-wimey um as, Mm -hmm. as some idiot once wrote um, he yes. doesn't say as one city as, as some idiot once said, which would be about the doctor saying it in Blink. He says yes. as, as some idiot once wrote, didn't he? So it's uh, yeah. He's in every interview. He's, he's always very self-deprecating about his abilities. I think. Yeah, yeah. He uses both the curator and the war doctor to sort of criticize the modern interpretation of Doctor Who. Yeah, <laughs> for which Mar- Moffat is largely responsible, along with RTD, who's yeah. a good friend of his. It seems so. Yeah, it's all very rich. Yeah, and then the uh, so as you say, the, the the three incarnations having met, they they're all taken to the Tower of London. So we get a scene which we don't get in the episode when they are um, being taken to the Tower of London, and then they're in the Tower of London, and it's got way more dramatic weight in the book, I think, than the episode. The like the the mental effect that it's having on him of being with the other incarnations and, and the last day of the time war being foremost on their minds. Um, they, they're, they're kind of ne- never more divided really uh, than they are at the beginning of this scene. They, the, because you get the scene from different perspectives, uh, both the journey and the time in the, uh, in the, in the dungeon. Um, and they're completely misreading each other all the time. When, when you hear it from one point of view, um, being quite dismissive of the other ones, and then you get it from their point of view, and you realise that they, the you know the war doctor thinks the other two are just kind of clowning around and being annoying, but then they're actually deeply troubled in what they're thinking about. 
um, and to some extent remembering what they have to do because they've experienced it from before from in the in the case of the 11th doctor experienced this scene twice before so he knows what what yeah. part he has to play despite what he's actually thinking internally um and then the the bit where they get to talking about the 2.47 billion children in gallifrey hmm. uh, is a physical fight in the book between the 10th and the 11th doctors the fact that the 10th doctor counted them and the 11th doctor's forgotten the number uh they actually come to blows which is which is uh yeah much more serious than it is in the in the tv episode yeah, and it's, I, I was it was reading that it was quite interesting because I, I wondered whether I I wondered whether I, a I believed it whether there had actually been a fight mm. or whether it felt like one because it was the eleventh Doctor's mind warring with itself, um, and whether or not the eleventh Doctor ever actually forgot it. Yeah, like, you can't choose to forget something. No. You can't actually like it's it's by definition. There's a yeah. There's a, there's an anecdote I won't tell here. But if you're ever curious about Emmanuel Kant and forgetting things, ask me at a party. Um, but the idea, yeah, the idea that uh, that you could decide not to think about it, it's like it's still in there. And and what it is, it's what he, when he says forget, what he means is I'm not thinking about it. Because he's running. Levin's doctor is always talked about he's running, and I never quite understood, really, until I read this book, what it was he was running from. Like he always talked about, I've always, I've run my whole life, blah blah blah. Mm. It's like, what are you, what are you talking about? And in here, it's made very clear he's running from that knowledge. He doesn't. He wishes he had never gone and counted, and he wishes he didn't know because he can't change it. But now he knows. And before he could maybe at least lie to himself about what he had done, but now he can't anymore. So thanks, tenth doctor. <laughs> yeah. Now stuck with this, um, and so he's trying to run away from that, from yeah. himself, and from that that person he was, and from that knowledge of having done it. Instead, he's trying to live in this other sort of happier, go lucky place. Yeah, and and the knowledge that he's always heading back for to that meeting uh, in the dungeon. Uh, he says, no matter where he goes and what he does, he knows he's going back to have that conversation again and, and relive it as well. Um, yeah, it's 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 much darker in the book. Yeah, uh, which I think I which I think is fair because I think that's fundamentally the thing that I liked most about what Moffat did with this story was take the opportunity to sort of look at that thing that was fundamental to sort of RTD's, you know, uh, vision of the show, which is that the doctor had ended the time war by killing Daleks and time Lords alike. And kind of RTD had done a lot. And Robert Holmes had started this work of making the time Lords awful. It was like, okay, fine. But Daleks are bred to be evil from creation. There is no such thing as a good Dalek. Mm -hmm. There are children on Gallifrey. Like, are you telling me Time Lords are born bad? No, that can't be. So therefore, there were millions, and in this book it's stated billions mm -hmm. of innocents who died because the doctor couldn't think of a different way. And the fact that Moffat seized on that as sort of like the central question of this story, like, it is not comparable to Genesis of the Daleks, where... I, do I have the right? Well, yes, it's genocide, but the Daleks are a lab-created thing that are not actually natural and are not 
positive in any way. Mm-hmm. They lead to good things, but they are in themselves inherently bad. They're like, a, you know, they're like a, they're like zombies in a video game. They're just bad. There's no good. That's not, no matter how corrupt adult time lords may have become, no matter how many atrocities they may have committed, the children of Gallifrey have to be considered blameless. And so that's the question. And I, I love that he treated it with the weight it deserved. It's sort of like, this can never be justified. I don't care how evil the leaders were. These are kids. They didn't do it. They yeah. deserve a chance. And I thought, I thought that was really lovely, really wonderfully well done. Yeah, and something that hadn't really been considered or addressed in Doctor Who since the time war was, was introduced and the idea that the Doctor had done this. Um, there, there'd been no mention of the innocents or the uh, just even the everyday kind of people. Uh, the people that we see in the time war um, that are running from the Daleks, they're not soldiers yeah. or, or the, the kind of Time Lord aristocracy. Mm-hmm. Um, so not even Time Lords, maybe. They're Gallifreyans, perhaps. Yeah. Whatever that distinction is. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's it's never made explicit, is it? But um, they're not dressed in the in the finery or in the um, kind of the, the no. citadel or anything, are they? They're uh, they're in quite a rustic location. They're Shabogans, essentially, and whatnot. You know, they're yeah. they're other people. They're just they're just folks. There have to have been. And this is the thing. Moffat realized. RTD can sort of blacken the reputation of sort of the Time Lord hierarchy in the mode of Robert Holmes all he wants. There were, uh, there have to have been other people. Mm-hmm. Like it can't have been that's the entire planet. It can't have been. That, that's silly. Um, and so he, he seizes that as his opportunity to sort of really revisit the question about this thing and, it's, and make it clear it's not badass. It's not cool. It's not even tragic. It's awful. Mm-hmm. It's just awful. And the doctor has to be better than that. He has to be better than that. They have to be better than that. So anyway, yeah, it's a good conversation. It's very intense. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and and by the end of the scene, it's the start of the the kind of reconciliation um, of, of the doctors and, and kind of with himself uh, because you get the the eleventh doctor sort of says, "Well, this is what I'm like when I'm alone," and it, it kind of all makes them laugh and kind of breaks the tension a little bit. Um, and then the analogy of the screwdriver having the same software but the different casing, uh, mm-hmm. that, that they all you know, kind of are basically the same uh, inside. Uh, so we, then the, the next chapter is chapter four, In the Absence of the Doctor. Kind yeah, of although a, I do just want to add, I, I forget, does the Clara joke happen at the end of that chapter? I think it does, right? Where yeah, they, Clara just comes and opens the door. Yeah, yeah, they've um, they've yeah. realised that they 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 they've got four hundred years between them in the room that they can they can set the program running, uh, and then he turns round and it's the eleventh Doctor turns around and points his sonic screwdriver at the door, uh, and he's he's even thinking to himself, um, "But the tenth Doctor, you're not the only one who can strike a pose, mate," uh, <laughs> and realises he's he's, uh, he's he's pointing at Clara Roswell, who's uh, who's standing there in front of the open door. Yeah. Yeah, and I kind, of, I kind of love that it sort of implies that they they kind of needed the, the doctors kind of all realized they didn't try the door because they didn't want to get out. Yeah, either because they knew what they were going to, or because they knew they needed this time together to deal with this stuff. Like that, they recognized this as sort of an opportunity, and that the plot could wait. Yeah. <laughs> They needed to have this dramatic scene and needed to have this out and have something resembling the beginnings of reconciliation. 
Yeah, yeah, because the eleventh Doctor by this point should remember that the door isn't locked. You think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you would think. Yeah, you would think. And and the fact that she makes a joke, none of you even tried to open the door. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's an obvious joke to make, and it's because they weren't trying to get out. Yeah. They were they were far too interested in fighting with each other and dealing with that. The the line in there made me think about when um, the the te- they're, they're asking. How, how come they're all together? And the tenth Doctor says, "Well, I'm where I should be because I was hunting Zygons." Um, yes. How it would have played out if the moment hadn't intervened? Presumably, <clears throat> the tenth Doctor would have just defeated the Zygons there and then, so they wouldn't have been able to um, store themselves in the paintings. Yeah, I guess that's why it would work out very straightforward, actually, wouldn't it? So. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I think, yeah. it, I think maybe, well, who knows how the adventure would have played out exactly. But the point is like, it's, it's what is essentially just every other, it's just a very casual adventure for the 10th doctor mm. suddenly gets, becomes the sort of basis and genesis for the 11th doctor's inspiration and the, the war doctor's salvation. Like it's interesting. He's the one who's just having like a day. Yeah. <laughs> like, the other two are like living through big moments and know they're living through big moments from like the first moment. The 10th doctor is like, eh, I'm just having an adventure. I'm off by myself. At the same time though, it is the period during which he is avoiding going and dealing with his inevitable death. Yeah. So there's that hanging over the whole thing too. Yeah. It's not, it's not really addressed that, is it? But yeah, it's um, because the, the start of the end of time is when, when he arrives on the, the Ood home world. He yeah. talks about having yeah spent the time with uh, with Queen Elizabeth or marrying her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and he's companionless, and the only time that happens is during the uh, the finales or during those sort of that last run of specials. Yeah. Yeah. So it has to be between Waters of Mars and End of Time. Mm. So the next bit we've got is Chapter Four in the absence of the Doctor, um, mm. which refers to the uh, the statement that Osgood is Unit's number one tactical asset in the absence of the doctor in the absence of the doctor yeah. yeah um and it really beefs up osgood's character from from because we know from from later episodes how important she is with the uh you know the zygon two-parter and things like that um but it very much I think, beefs up her importance to unit and her vast intelligence and all that kind of stuff, which you maybe don't get watching the episode. You get that she's she's clever and she's high ranking, but in this, that she is phenomenally clever. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's what we get here is it's like Moffat saw her from the Zygon two-parter and realized, oh, that's what she should have been like more all along. Yeah, I should have put forward more that Osgood isn't just smart she's wise mm. she's she's wise beyond her age and beyond her human form in some way like she's kind of doctory yeah um and i should play up but that doesn't mean she's still not sort of you know a super nerd fan girl who like mm. ventilates and needs her inhaler <laughs> and stuff that's still all true because you can be both you can be both and he sort of realized i need i, I can beef her up more here and so yeah she does both in her actions and her interior monologue and in the sort of way she's talked about as being, you know, the, their number one asset in the absence of the doctor uh, and how he plays with that several times. It's sort of like when he realizes, she realizes, okay, he's not here. Okay. It's on to me to think of something. Yeah. 
uh, yeah, it's quite it's quite interesting. And having her first person narration, although uh, because this is done later, if I recall, we don't know if it's her or if it's Zygon her. Yeah, the, the, we get the first bit where it's from Kate's point of view, and then you realise that she's already been replaced. Um, yeah, it's Zygon Kate. Yeah, Zygon Kate, <laughs> because she, she kills the poor guard, the guy that's been working there for 10 years, but always thinks it's his first day because his memory gets wiped. Yeah. Um, so he's got a really tragic life anyway, and then she sort of just quietly breaks his neck. Um, and, and, and it's interesting, the moment you realize, sort of realize something might be going on, if I recall, is she says something about it being barbaric. Yeah. Or like, like you're reading from Kate's perspective and she says how barbaric this practice is that this man has his memory constantly wiped every day routinely. And it's like, Oh, it is quite barbaric. I hadn't thought about that. Oh, that's awful. Oh, wait, why is Kate thinking that? Oh wait, what's going on? Yeah. Because it's, you know, throwaway, it's, like it's a throwaway joke in the, uh, in the TV episode. Uh, but when you yep. stop to think about it for any amount of time, it's horrific and barbaric, yeah. Yeah, it completely is. It completely is. And he calls attention to it and has the evil alien be the one saying this is awful. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then and then we get – so these are these are sort of unit archive kind of things, aren't we? So, so we get the, the stuff that, that Kate wrote and then we, we get the, um, the Osgood stuff. Um, and, yeah, I thought the, the, the way she's written is, is much more true to how she is later on. Um, and also, I've been listening to some of the, the Big Finish Unit series where, mm. where they've got Kate Stewart and Osgood. Um, and yeah, she's very much in line with that as well in terms of how clever and important she is. The most recent one, Cyber Reality, is really good. You see how dangerous she, she is kind of turned against humanity. Um, mm. So it kind, of, it kind of flips, so it's very good. Um, but also, as she's, she's dressed, like you say, she's a bit doctory, she's got the scarf in this one, and in her every appearance, she's got some aspect of, uh, of the doctor's costumes. Um, yeah, she's got the question marks, she's got a bow tie later. Yeah, she's, she's a, and in this, she's a bit of kind of a mirror of the doctor as well, because like, like the doctor, she's, she's not that comfortable with who she is. Um, she's got that kind of conflict within her. She's, uh, a theme in this is, or a running kind of thing, is that she wants to be other people, uh, she, she wants to be Kate Stewart. Uh, it talks about how she's wanted to be Amy Pond and Sarah Jane Smith, mm-hmm. um, even though she, she knows her own importance of being the number one tactical asset. She's not that comfortable in her own skin. Um, and, and as the doctor kind of resolves uh, you know, who he is. Question yeah. of identity and then being sort of the role you assign yourself, but not feeling like you live up to it always. And yeah, and as a she could be better and... Yeah, she she comes to accept who she is as, as as the doctor does in the course of the story as well. So it's, uh, it's it's kind of a nice bit of mirroring, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's really lovely, and and um, and it also really allowing her a chapter really sort of highlights how important she is to the story because there's the scene in the the show where the two Osgoods are talking about how because of the mind work they don't know which is which, and they're talking about clothes being copied, but there's only one inhaler. Yeah, and they both remember who has the inhaler, Zygon Osgood or, or Human Osgood, and they both agree. They do the, ch- and they both just keep it. They could wreck the whole thing right then. Yeah, you know, the Zygon or the Human. They both say no. This is clearly what is for the best because they both have Os- Osgood's mind, and Osgood is wise, and she knows this is what needs to happen. And so instead of it going back to ah fighty fighty fighty. 
they're like, no, we just we just won't tell anybody about that pit, and they don't. And I think that, I think that's brilliant. It's it's a very doctory move. Yeah, and it's it's, very doctory. Yeah, and it's this, this sort of um, remind me a little bit of the girl in the fireplace when uh, Raynette can read the doctor's mind as well. She says, but once the door's opened, it can be. Uh, you can pass through oh, both yeah. ways, and it, the Zygon is so impressed with Osgood's intelligence and um, and personality that she says, "I like being you," and that that's what helps her. She writes a, a letter yes. to uh, the the Zygon version of herself, uh, and that's basically the beginning of the plan where there'll be two Osgoods as well. Yeah, um, yeah, and again, and again, it's sort of he. You know, this was the first time we'd seen the Zygons on Zygons on screen since Terra the Zygons, mm-hmm. where they were generic evil aliens that just had good design. Um, and here, he again takes the sort of idea of what the Zygons are from the Zygon two-parter, which is that they're actually quite a peaceful race who happen to have these defense mechanisms and actually kind of just want to blend in. And that's what they—that's their ultimate goal usually, yeah. and only resort to violence when they're threatened. They're not like evil conquerors, which, you know, makes more sense for an alien race. Yeah. And he kind of starts reforming them here and kind of makes it clear, even though on the TV show, they're still sort of more like drippy alien goo monsters. Yeah. In the book, he makes it clear that like they don't necessarily want to be doing this and they're kind of happy with the arrangement that comes out. Yeah. They just didn't think humanity would ever accept them. And so they thought this is the only way. Yeah, they're they're looking for a home, aren't they? That's their only. Uh, that's it. Yeah, that's uh, it. They don't want to kill all the humans necessarily. They just want to, you know. They think they think they have to in order to have a home. But if they can find a deal where they have a home without killing all the humans, great. Yeah. There's some. Then there's, there's a lot of humor in this bit as well. I think with with Osgood, she's uh, she's good. There's stuff about when she uh, when she's freeing Kate from the kind of Zygon duplication kind of stringy stuff um, yes. and she she lets Kate hit the floor because she says uh, if she falls on top of him it would be inappropriate sexual tension in the workplace which is definitely <laughs> against but then the the stuff with McGillop um, like not long after that she's um, the guy yeah, the guy yeah. the unit guy the one who gets the phone call on the TV show the one who gets the phone call from the doctor saying move the painting yeah. who gets a slightly larger role in the book yeah, there's this unspoken attraction between them, and she's saying, "But we're, we're colleagues." And whenever she says anything about him, but she says, hey, "Yeah, that's that's what I'm like with all my colleagues." Um, but then just after she lets Kate fall to the floor face first, she's then sort of holding McGillop's hand and putting it, putting an arm around him, um, yeah. because he's been through the same thing that Kate has. <laughs> yes. Um, so it's, yeah, it's kind of a, yeah lack of self knowledge uh, thing. Yeah, there's a little bit of clearly thing. she likes the fact that he fancies. Her, although he does, she doesn't like finding out the way she finds out, which is because yeah. it's like Zygon mind stuff. Yeah, and so she's a bit sort of like, oh, that's unpleasant. Um, <laughs> but she, yeah, one one guesses that off screen they maybe go and have drinks once or twice, but probably nothing happens of it. But maybe who knows? Yeah, yeah, that's the uh, when when she's sort of psychically linked with the Zygon Osgood. Yeah, she can share memories of the Zygon McGillop, um, and he's got memories of the real McGillop who spends yeah. a lot of time looking at a bottom, basically, during some yeah. really dramatic scenes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah essentially, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which is, uh, yeah. It, it, it's the way that um, I think Stephen Moffat sometimes, yeah, would uh, can portrays men as well, isn't it? It's um, less subtle and uh, 
than, than women in these things. <laughs> Slightly. Yeah. Slightly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then we get, and then but then we cut back to the the wedding of the doctor chapter. Yeah. Uh, and this is before yeah. this slightly before this is when we get the curator spending a bit of time with the brigadier um, playing risk ah. um, and the brigadier is a bit cross with him the fact that he's writing this book because it's a security breach uh, and the doctor says it's fine because I'm going to put it out as fiction so nobody will guess <laughs> um, but what I liked as well is that they're, they're, they're playing risk but he said the brigadier is playing as the Daleks Yes, they're playing. Yes, they're playing uh, the Doctor Who version of Risk that I briefly owned. <laughs> yeah, they, they, there's. A, I was going to say there is this Dalek Invasion of Earth version that's out, isn't there? So they, yes. they've somehow got hold of a copy of that. Why not? Yeah, <laughs> just adds to the the meta elements of the uh, the the interchapter sections, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, the 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 fiftieth anniversary comic that was written by Paul Cornell. Yeah, the girl um, who loved Doctor had Who had the eleventh Doctor going to a Doctor Who convention. Yes, I love that story. And I, yeah, it, no, it's really lovely, uh, and uh, I think I think this might be Stephen sort of doing the same sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and then again, we're invited to guess which Doctor's writing this chapter, the wedding of the Doctor. And I, I was leaning towards the War Doctor here because it's the first time the War Doctor's really written in the third person mm. when it's not from the point of view of one of the other Doctors in, in the dungeon sort of thing. So that was, um, it, it, it's kind of, it's, I saw it as a sign of them reconciling with each other, uh, with himself, that he's now written as the other Doctors are. And by the end of this, the last line, I think, of the chapter is uh, the Doctor wants more. Uh, that he's starting to feel like the Doctor again and, and, and doing Doctory things. Yeah, it's, yeah, it is interesting because I'm just looking at it now, and it's, yeah, it's when when he introduces because the War Doctor immediately likes Clara. Like he immediately is like, "Yeah, I like you." Yeah. Um, and he's referred to as just the Doctor there, um, and it's almost like in meeting Clara, the War Doctor realizes who he can be again. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of, it's like this idea always, the doctor without a companion is not the doctor. He's just some guy. Yeah. Or some woman. And it's like the companions are what make him better. Uh, I forget which doctor says that my friends have always been the best of me, which yeah. is such a beautiful line. Um, and I think this is a moment where it's like meeting Clara. It's like, oh, I am, I am. Yeah. Okay. I remember how to do this. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I don't think the other doctors would call the war doctor the doctor. No. Uh, yeah, that made me think it was him. And it ties back to listen as well, doesn't it? it? It prompts him to remember the line, fear makes companions of us all. Yes. When he hears a voice, um, which again, one of the things that sort of, I guess, um, set him out on his journey. So it's, a, it's another way of reminding him who he really is. Mm-hmm. And that it was his first friends who made him, who turned him into sort of this person that he is now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and nice and it's, it's, again, it's quite lovely. <laughs> yeah. There, there's a call, uh, I think it's much earlier on, isn't it? It's when the, the 11th Doctor phones the school to uh, to ask if Clara can, uh, can come to meet him. We learn that um, Ian and Barbara, they're on their fourth honeymoon. <laughs> Something uh, like that, yeah. Yeah, so it's nice. Which, which contradicts what was in Sarah Jane Adventures, but that's fine. 
Was it the Sergei Adventures? Was that they never aged? Was it? Was that? Yeah, they never. They were too old. You know, they're too long time dons at Oxford or something, who never aged. Yeah. Right. Which yeah. is also beautiful, but I, I like both ideas. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the companions are all still out there is uh, the nicest way of thinking about it, isn't it? And and the biggest point is that they're married. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> In Barbara, are definitely married wherever they are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're together and they're married and they're happy and that's how they will always be. Yeah. I think that's always been, been the assumption, hasn't it? Probably even the earliest spin-off media had them, uh, that they definitely got married yeah, to the church. Oh, I mean, it has to. Come on, what's yeah. that? But... Uh, so chapter six is, is um, Dearest Petronella, which is the, the letter that Osgood writes to her Zygon counterpart. And this is how we're related the events of uh, the doctors managing to break into the Black Archive through the painting um, and then the sort of enforced negotiations to, uh, to, to settle, uh, settle on Earth in peace. Uh, which is the, the nice thing, because they said a few times in the book about Osgood is the number one tactical asset in the absence of the Doctor. Uh, mm-hmm. And then when they arrive, she says something like, I'm not, I'm not currently the number one tactical asset. I'm no longer the number one tactical asset. Yeah, yeah. I'm no longer in the absence. Yeah, which is nice. Yeah, so I, I really like that I can line. sort of step, stand down a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then the creator sort of fills us in. Because in the, in the episode, we never found out, did we? We didn't find out until the Zygon 2 part of what the resolution was to the negotiations no. uh, in the Black Archive. So the, the creator sort of fills that in. And I've always thought yeah, since then... Yeah, quite nice. Yeah, I, I've always thought ever since the Zygon 2 part, does this mean that some of the people um, on the moon base or on, you know, kind of um, Nerva Beacon, you know, are some of those Zygons? I mean, it's possible. What happens to it's, them? I mean, it's, it's entirely possible that the future of humanity, like it's, I don't know how Zygon breeding works. I know they have like, I don't know. I actually, I honestly don't know. So it's possible. Yeah. That they just intermarried or it's possible that generation just didn't marry and they died out. Yeah. And that's just, and that was fine. And they, that they're not super concerned with propagating their own. I don't know. Um, yeah. Like, and I, I think that's okay. Some people would say that's a plot hole. Those people were wrong. <laughs> people say anything's a plot hole. I, you see on they Twitter, do. I don't like it. It's a plot hole. Yeah. Some somebody put something on Twitter this week about um, they have been reading some review of something and they accused uh, Stephen Moffat of not explaining why the master became a female as a plot hole. Yes. <laughs> I think you don't know what a plot hole is. Yeah. Yes. That is something you don't know about the fiction. That is not by definition a plot hole. Yeah. That's just a thing you haven't been told. Become one of these things like uh, people who use Deus, Deus Ex Machina. Deus Ex Machina, yeah. Without fully understanding what it really means. And yeah, this, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's part of the lexicon of, of Doctor Who fandom, isn't it? But, uh, yeah. yeah. But if it's a thing that's set up, it is by definition not a Deus Ex Machina. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. Just an ending. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just an ending. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we get the and he kind of deals with. I don't want to say. I don't want to make this sound dismissive. He deals with the plot plot fairly quickly. Yeah, like he's not because he's like you've seen that. He knows you've seen it. Mm-hmm. He's not there to like tell you the story of how. He's there to tell you of how it felt to be there. 
he's writing this to tell you what the people thought and what how they felt about being there in a way that you can't get on a TV show easily without having tons of narration, which is a nightmare. Yeah. And so, like, he goes through, like, the plot mechanics quite briskly. But we're going to do this. The Zygons are doing this. This is the plan, blah, blah, blah. And instead spends a lot of his time in dialogue in internal monologue in sort of commentary from the people, the doctors as they write from the letters from Petronella and the thing from Kate, all that good stuff. And by adding other juicy stuff like chapter seven, which is second to last the day of the doctor. Yeah. And, um, the, as you can say, the last thing in, in this scene I like is that Stephen Moffat was able to reinstate the stuff about the Peter Cushing Dalek movies. Yes. Which apparently they uh, originally were going to have in the Black Archive, there was going to be one of the movie posters, uh, and Kate Stewart was going to have a line about, you know, this is what happened when, you know, news about the Doctor gets out into the wider world. Um, yes. But the studio was going to charge them so much, even just to show the image of the poster, that it was <laughs> prohibitively expensive. Um, oh, that's ridiculous. It is, isn't it? When you think... The free exposure alone would have gotten so many people to buy, you know, those movies. And by the way, they're both available on with riff tracks. If you like riff tracks and you want to see the movies but think they're probably going to be boring on their own, which they kind of are, uh, you can get them riffed, and they're quite funny. Cool. I will put a link in the show notes to that. Yeah, I think they're actually on Amazon Prime in America for for that matter. But yeah, yeah, no, that that should have been in there. But yeah, he's able to put that in. Yeah, and when like, the, the movies wouldn't exist without the TV show, yeah, it seems very mean spirited, yeah. doesn't it? So uh, I, I think they probably just thought they could extort the BBC, and the BBC just said no, and there yeah. was probably not another round of negotiations, yeah. and it all went away. Uh, so they, they you get the tenth and eleventh doctors sitting watching the movies while humanity and the Zygons negotiate. Um, and there's a really nice gag I thought about um, Peter Cushing being the Doctor's friend, uh, which they only realised when he started showing up in movies after his death. So it's uh, explains his <laughs> appearance in yes. Rogue One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. A nice gag. But that's lovely that like he like taught him how to they whichever iteration of the Doctor who knows like, helped him with the role or whatever and yeah, you know, friends and yeah, lent him and a and Yeah, so they're watching <laughs> the movie. Um, meanwhile, Clara is with the War Doctor. Um, and sort of slowly working on him, yeah, without and sl- and coming to understand him and really because it is you know fundamentally the hero of the story is Clara Oswald, which I know is something that a lot of people hate because they think Clara saves everything, yeah. But it's her humanity, mm-hmm. and that's the part of himself the War Doctor has lost touch with the most. Um, it's 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 a, to be the Doctor is to kind of be super duper human, like. Like a superhuman, not like a superhuman, but like a superhuman, like to be just really great, um, to be, you know, a doctor, to be like a great doctor. And and she's and, – and it's interesting that the other doctors, because they're not thinking about it and because they, they're not – like their memories are fuzzy, she's the one who realizes you haven't done it yet, have you? Mm-hmm. And, she, and because of that, she realizes I can, like, I saw, I can stop this. I, Clara Oswald, can stop this from happening because I've realized something about this moment that these two chuckleheads have not noticed. Yeah. You haven't done it yet. And she says she notices because his eyes look so young, something like that. Like the sadness and weight that she sees in her doctor's eyes aren't in the war doctor's eyes yet, which is funny. Like, you know, it's funny to think of John Hurt having younger eyes than Matt Smith. Yeah. 
Uh, and she she talks about how her doctor talks about that day quite often, mm-hmm. um, which obviously you don't get in the TV show, but yeah. he, he would, you, you would guess. Um, and that, yeah, how could you not? Yeah, and that he's not, not carrying that weight uh, that she that she hears when he talks about it. Which brings up the clown again, which we'll come back to in a moment. Yeah. Um, but before that, we get we get the chapter that made me cry so hard I had to put the book down for like five minutes. Um, which is the actual chapter called Day of the Doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it kind of essentially it deals with the 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 fixing of the problem. It's it's the solution. It's the going. It's the TARDIS is arriving. It's the giving them hope by the sound. It's the sort of the moment having orchestrated all of it. Yeah, you know all of that stuff. And but what he adds, I mean, he tweaks things here and there. But what he adds is this idea that it took hours to do this transference process. Yeah, and that the only way it wasn't a huge, if someone says it'll be a huge disaster, there'll be earthquakes and floods. And, and I forget which doctor says, which He's like, it'll be horrible. And like, he's like, yeah, but we'll be there to help. Mm. And that's when you sort of get this idea that all of the doctors are doing it. And so what you get are just these quick snippets of, instead of having like their voices, like he does in the TV show, he realized I have to get them in there somewhere. How do I get them in? And instead what he has is during these hours where the TARDIS is are sort of like doing the math and doing the thing, it's all of the individual doctors are shown just saving people, just saving everyday people on Gallifrey as they sort of survive this catastrophe of being transferred and shunted off to this other dimension, like cup of soup. Um, and it's just beautiful because it's just them doing the everyday humdrum. It's like in comic books where you like, you, you see Spider-Man just like stop a car from hitting a kid. Mm-hmm. It's like not what the comics about, but it's what makes him a hero. You know, it's like what makes him great. And it's like, it's these series of moments of like the first doctor site and like all of them just described by like their goofy costumes or whatever, doing these just remarkable things to save a bunch of kids, a group of a whole city, a bunch of people here. Like essentially the idea is that for this, however many hours or day, I forget how long it was, all of the doctors up to and including the Capaldi doctor are just running all over get like there's just hundreds of them yeah like crossing their own timeline willy-nilly just to make sure that during this hugely cataclysmic process nobody dies like he saves them all it's glorious isn't it yeah is it it's it's so it's so wonderful it's so wonderful just through sheer effort and being there and he's like, why not? I'm already breaking everything. Let's just go for it. Yeah. And so, like, there are, like, 57 doctors on Gallifrey all at once running around saving people. And it's like, that's, that's amazing. I love it. I love it so much. It's so good. It's yeah. so good. And it's so smart. So smart to, like, oh, I can't do the voices in the video clips, which is what made the sort of cheer moment in the show. What can I do? Oh, I can do this. Yeah. Boom. This. Yeah, that would have been very dull in the book. Um, you're just getting those little snippets. But you think it plays out the same, even the first Doctor appearing and his voice coming over. Um, yes. And then it's the 12th Doctor is in the in the war room uh, with the general and everybody. Yes. And then, yeah, and it's, uh, <laughs> he shows up. Yes, I love that. Yeah, it's terrific. And, and it, 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 guess what Moffat would have done if he'd at all been able to, um, you know, kind of budget-wise and, and, and the actors still looking the same. Uh, in the TV show, but yeah, it's it is fantastic, isn't it? It's uh, 
you, you're, all the doctors are present and they're yeah shepherding people into the TARDIS or uh, piloting things that are going to crash and it's yeah absolutely fantastic. And they're all like making jokes and they're being they're being the doctor we always want them to be. Yeah. And and it's so great to have it be like yeah the day of the doctor and it really is so you get this idea that everyone on Gallifrey is like oh that's the day the doctor saved us all mm-hmm. that day. I was saved by this version. You were saved by that version. But that day, the doctor saved all of us. Like, not like, oh, he moved the planet. But like, no, he was there. He shook my hand. He like patted me on the head. He gave me a jelly baby. Yeah. Whatever. And it's it's lovely. It's re- it's really like right now, seriously, getting misty because it's just such a perfect encapsulation of what we need the doctor to be. And it's not like, oh, I save all planets. It's he saves individual people, mm. and that's great. So good. Yeah, no, completely agree. Um, and it, and the thing is as well, it could it could have happened in the in the episode as well. You see the it, the sort of scene finishes with the TARDIS flying around, and then you cut to the next scene. But it could have taken the I think it says about nine hours or something like that. Something um, like that. It, yeah, it could have it's taken a long day. Time. Yeah, <laughs> and all of that could could have happened. Um, the bit I like in the, the the section after this, the curator talks about. He says something about. Um, historians, by which he means fans, have queried how all the Daleks could have been destroyed. Uh, he says, this, this question has caused heated debate at the highest level. I think this is a reference. There's an interview that Russell T. Davis did with Frank Skinner last year. Um, I'll try and find it, put a link in the show notes. Um, and Frank Skinner can, he quite cheekily asks Russell T. Davis if he's okay with Stephen Moffat reversing the destruction of Gallifrey. Uh, and Russell T. Davis says the only thing he wasn't sure about was when the planet disappears, would all of the Daleks have just shot each other? Um, <laughs> I think it's a, I think it's a kind of a repost to that. <laughs> I mean, it's is, possible, uh, and, nice, and yeah. we know that Daleks survived, and Daleks were always going to survive. Yeah. So that's not. A, um, I also think it's sort of silly just to think that um, Gallifrey vanishes, and it's just guns. Like they're using crazy weaponry. Yeah, like crazy future space weaponry the highest achievement of Dalek technology ever was at this moment in the time war. Like whatever they have, it's going to be pretty serious if it's causing all the barriers of Gallifrey to fall. So, you know, I'll accept it. Yeah. Would they, and, and at the same time, if there are no time Lords to be destroyed elsewhere, every Dalek would have gone to Gallifrey. Mm hmm. You know, just to be like, we have to get the final push. Yeah. They would have put all the troops there. So it makes enough. It makes, Enough sense that I go with it. Yeah, it it wasn't something that bothered me. It's it's the last all out assault, isn't it? Um, and it's yeah. that, it's a really neat logic as well to finish it. It's like Blink when the when the TARDIS disappears and the and the angels all see it's each the other. Exact and, same so. logic as Blink. It's yeah. the exact same trick. <laughs> it's it's a nice. Often has like five ideas. Yeah. He's good at dressing them up differently. Yeah. <laughs> it's um yeah it's a beautiful neat resolution yeah. Uh, yeah, and then speaking of resolutions, so we get the we get the ending we see on the show with the the curator coming in and uh, finally sort of he's like, oh, this is the part where I come in. Yeah. Although he's not, he, he I forget. He's like, he's like, oh, you weren't meant to know something, or you weren't meant to see me. I forget how it works. Yeah. But he goes in, he goes in, and essentially we get the live feed of him talking to the others. Oh, and there's the lovely bit where he says. Um, I've watched them all all afternoon. They slowly left one by one. Mm. The idea being that all the doctors gathered in that museum that afternoon 
after yeah. having saved the gal Freddy. They were all there, hanging out, having tea, talking about what they had done, and they sort of slowly leave one by one, which I thought, again, beautiful. I love that. Um, I can imagine that room and that scene, and, like, Pertwee over in the corner, like, commenting, and, like, Colin Baker having a fight about fashion. You yeah. know, I just love that idea. Yeah. It's super wanky, but I don't care. It's a beautiful <laughs> touch. It's, great. it's earned, though, after, the, um, after that chapter. Yes. Yeah. Yes, totally it's earned. completely earned. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and it, yeah. Cup of tea. So the, the, what we actually saw on screen was was after they left, and, and we're just left with the uh, the three that have been been in throughout the story, the the tenth, eleventh, and War Doctors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the three trying to spend the whole day together. Yeah. And then we've got the uh, the final chapter, chapter thirteen, is the Doctor. Because um, he describes how the Doctor keeps thinking about the moment and why the moment helped him in that way and and, and saved Gallifrey. Um, but that when he thinks about the moment, that she can feel that, <laughs> and it keeps sort of bothering her. So she uh, she revisits the doctor to uh, to explain. And there's a couple of times that um, that the doctor's visited um, with with an explanation. And then the last scene is it really really helps the doctor to uh, to, to make peace with being the doctor, basically. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just gonna. Re- if you don't mind, I'm just gonna read it. No, absolutely. Like, yeah. like, That's the best way. Like half page, but it gets just so good. Yeah. So the next time I saw her, she was standing knee deep in a fountain at the heart of the Villingrad Banana Groves. Another Moffat and joke. It must have been a year later, but she resumed the conversation as if there had been no interruption. This is the moment speaking. I did it because the universe needs the Doctor to be the Doctor, and you were in danger of stopping. You have no idea how necessary you are. Don't be daft, I said. Truly, Doctor, if you didn't exist, we would have to dream you. The Doctor doesn't exist. Just a stupid idea in my stupid head. No, 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 you're always getting this wrong. She was stamping and splashing now, impatient with me. The Doctor isn't who you try to be. You are the Doctor because you try. Are you absolutely sure you're a weapon interface? I asked her. You sound a lot like a Christmas cracker. Oh, shut up, she said, and vanished, crossly. She might have been flattering me, I thought, as I climbed out of the crater. But did weapon interfaces do that? Well, anyway, enough brooding, I decided. The day of the doctor was over, at last, and it was time to get my head back in the game. Somewhere there's danger, somewhere there's injustice, and somewhere else the tea is getting cold. Come on, doctor, work to do. So it was me who set off across the muddy battlefield towards the TARDIS, but it was the doctor who opened the door, stepped inside, and slammed it shut behind her. Finny. Yes. It's an absolute perfect way to finish it, isn't it? it it's, I guess, it's, it's the, the idea of the ramifications of this day still going on and the moment revisiting, even when it's the new doctor and, and him just stating officially, she is the same doctor as everyone else because mm-hmm. these events happened to her. And now she's thinking about it, and the moment's still coming, looking like Rose Tyler, and everything is still like the doc. The doctor walked in, and the door slammed behind her. So good, yeah. So good. It's because it's that trick that, it, and he plays it throughout the book, and it you still fall for it. <laughs> of yes, pitch, yes. Making you picture one doctor, and then pulling the rug out from underneath you, and thing, and then you have to reread it. 
um, yeah, picture another doctor in here and another doctor's voice. Um, yeah, the uh, the amount you could reread this book, I think, like we said before about rereading it in chapter order, um, it's definitely one I'm going to keep going back to. Yeah, no, it's it's really it's not just like oh now I get to read. It's like it's it's a completely different experience from having seen the show. Like the episode is my favorite episode of Doctor Who of all time, and probably will be until the day I die unless something amazing comes along in the interim. Um, but even so, this was like it was so. I was, I was literally at times just overwhelmed by like just how good it was and how much it was making me think and feel about this stuff in a way that the show never had, even though the show is always brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, no, it's, it's just phenomenal and I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Like, yeah, uh, so good. So good. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely, it's among my favorite stories, but I think it's my favorite doctor who book this. Yeah, I would. I would definitely of the novels I've read. This is the only novelization aside from Shada, but mm-hmm. it definitely would be among a handful of my favorite of the novels. And I'd have to have a really hard think to make sure it wasn't my favorite. But yeah, either way, highly like yeah, it, it's a tremendously impressive piece of work. Yeah, um, and and really really balances sort of all the different elements quite nicely. Um, and really reframes the questions that are raised in the story while deepening them and sort of making them richer and, and oddly enough, more relatable and less about saving the universe and more about saving one man, which is kind of what the story is actually about on TV. But it's, again, you lose that with all the whiz bangering. Mm-hmm. In the novel, it's sort of, he never lets you forget that's what it's actually about. It's the day the doctor, by saving everyone, saved himself. Simple as that. And herself. Yes. That's tricky, isn't it? With the uh... <laughs> yeah, I think I think we just have to go with they. Yeah, <laughs> accept the fact that it's a singular plural, and the doctors have always been they. So mm. why not just lean into it? Yeah, yeah, make the adjustment. Yeah. So. yeah, no, good stuff. Very good stuff. Thank you for sending it to me. It was a delightful present to receive. <laughs> no problem at all. Uh, yeah, I'd um, heartily recommend it to to absolutely anybody. Uh, well, hopefully you've already read it if you listen, if you listen to all this. <laughs> yeah, if otherwise we've just completely ruined it for you. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So thank you very much for joining me today, Eric. It's been a, an absolute pleasure discussing this one with you. Oh, it's been a delight. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I hope I didn't prattle on too long. No, no, not at all. Yeah, so this being the 50th um, episode of the podcast, I wanted to thank people for listening to it, supporting it, downloading it, subscribing, things like that. So um, as a prize, we've got one of the the much sought after BNM Bargains exclusive uh, 12th Doctor um, sets of figures, the five and a half inch figures. It's got the, the 12th Doctor, Missy, and Bill Potts figure, which um, I think currently is the, uh, the only way you can get a Bill Potts figure. Um, if you've been on Twitter, you've probably seen that these are incredibly hard to get hold of for some reason. They have not adequately stocked the uh, <laughs> the branches of B&M Bargains to meet the demand. <laughs> if you leave a review on iTunes for the Trap One podcast, um, hopefully a positive one, but uh, you know if you've derived any enjoyment out of it, hopefully you will. Uh, and then, say, in a month's time, so the podcast that we do um, anytime after the 26th of September, um, I will announce a winner on that one. So good luck, everyone. Good luck, indeed. Uh, So thanks again, Eric. Thank you again.
Join me next time when Keith will be back on the podcast and we will be talking about the latest Paul McGann Big Finish set, uh, which is Ravenous One. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye.